0: from washington dc and around the world this is government matters with francis rose thanks for watching government matters the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government i'm your host francis rose the leader of the technology transformation service is leaving government and neil Cherian says he'll step down from his post at the general services administration july 17th to take a private sector job FedScoop reports Charrion's leaving about a month after the departure of Bob DeLuca, the executive director of the Centers of Excellence program. DeLuca left GSA June 19th. The Pentagon could keep half of any operations and maintenance money left at the end of the the fiscal year, according to a new amendment from House Armed Services Committee ranking member Mac Thornberry. The department loses any O&M money left at the end of the year now, breaking defense reports Homeland Security, Treasury, Transportation, and other agencies can already keep 50% of their leftover O&M money. The Navy will mothball the first four littoral combat ships it commissioned to save money more than a decade before it originally planned. The service will deactivate the Freedom, Independence, Fort Worth, and Coronado March 31st of next year. Defense News reports the Navy will put the ships into inactive reserve status so it could reactivate them in a crisis. The desire for agencies to buy cloud computing services by the drink is finally coming true. The General Services Administration will enable pricing for cloud computing services based on consumption. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer at IntelliBridge. He's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, at the General Services Administration. Alan, this has been a tough nut for every federal organization to crack because the acquisition process just hasn't been written for buying subscription type services or consumption based services. What's the difference here in how this will work for agencies across government, Alan?
1: Well, I think the draft acquisition letter that uh, GSA put out, right, really. Uh, provides kind of a how-to and some cover uh, for agencies to do that, or at least for contracting officers in the schedules program uh, to do that. So this is actually not something that's prohibited in the FAR. It just kind of exists in that white space um, that so often gets uh, gets overlooked. So, you know, this is GSA and really um, two of the smartest people in acquisition, right? Emily Murphy and Jeff Kosis. I think, kind of trying to push the ball forward um, and give, you know, kind of provide an example out there where you can bring some of these great private sector practices and some of these business techniques that are in use in the private sector uh, into the into the federal marketplace with hopefully some nice benefits for um, for federal agencies
0: one of the challenges in the private sector or in the public sector compared to the private sector is if the c-suite in a private sector company decides okay we want to do this and we can re reorder the budget however we need to to accomplish this immediately that doesn't, it doesn't work that way in the public sector, and the budgeting process, as you well know now, is three years out in some cases. What's the help here, if any, for agencies to figure out how to make this work budget-wise and not just acquisition-wise?
1: So so this really does tackle just the acquisition side of it, right? It does not tackle the um, the, the fiscal side of it, right? So that, that's, that is still a potential impediment. In fact, the draft acquisition letter talks about um, the you know appropriate cases to use this are either with uh, what's so called no year money or with multi year money where you have at least uh, an additional year of funding uh, left on. And unfortunately, what often happens now is agencies uh, kind of over obligate uh, because they're being conservative and they want to you know they want to have money there in case there is a a spike in demand with um, you know with the current pricing construct that they have in place. So if you can move to a consumption based model, it would help alleviate some of that over obligation problem but there definitely is still a step to be taken on the on the financial side right to potentially enact some reforms there that would provide agencies with additional flexibility so that they could use that so-called one year money which is where a lot of the O&M money and technology is
0: ordinarily in a case like this i would ask somebody with your 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 expertise what should agencies be looking for here my sense though is agencies have been looking for the capability to buy by the drink for years and years and this is now finally just basically cover permission, um, a change of expectations for them to be able to go and do what they already, I think know how to do and know they've wanted to do for a long time. Do you think I'm reading that right, Alan? I
1: think I think you are. yeah. I mean, it's again, it's cover on the potential cover on the schedules program, right? So it's part of that process of you know making buying and selling easier and kind of keeping the schedules program modern and up to date. But yes, I think agencies generally, understand how to do this. The the provider, the technology provider community, right, has certainly been doing with their private sector customers for a long time. And so they, um, you know, I think they've been able to educate government customers on why this makes sense. And there are, you know, you can think of a host of instances in government where where you'd want to have uh, consumption-based pricing. I do think it's important to point out, it's not a panacea, right? That it's, uh, it's kind of not a one size fits all solution. It's a tool uh, in the government contracting officer's toolbox. A pricing strategy that they might want to employ, and probably across an agency, or you employ a mix um, of pricing strategies, right? I mean, you might do some traditional subscription-based pricing, you might do some tiered pricing, you might do some uh, consumption with a not-to-exceed ceiling, you might just do some straight consumption. So, um, again, this is just putting another tool, kind of trying to bring parity between what uh, how the government operates and how the private sector operates.
0: What should agencies pay attention to as they're trying to make those decisions? Do you think, or is that? More an IT-based uh, needs analysis rather than an acquisition needs analysis.
1: No, I think I think the you know the the program folks and the acquisition folks really have to work um, work hand in hand here. So I think you know consumption-based pricing is best in situations where um, w- where you need elasticity, right? So I you know I can think of a couple of uh, fairly simple examples. You know, one would be in a disaster scenario where you might have a suite of applications. And a set of data where all of a sudden there's a huge spike in demand for those apps and that data, and it exists for a, you know a, a short period of time, and then the you know the demand goes back down. The agency should have the ability and would, through consumption-based pricing, to quickly spin up the compute power to meet the demand, and then you know and then spin it down, and again only pay for what they're using. You know another example, not necessarily at the federal level, but at the state level, you know I think about the recent spike in unemployment claims. Right. That came from the coronavirus. Right. That's an example of where an agency, if they had a lot of that online, would want to be able to, you know, kind of quickly spin up compute power to meet the demand and then and then again, bring it down once the once the demand waned.
0: We have less than a minute left. I mentioned at the beginning of the program that your former colleague at GSA, Neil Cherry, is leaving government. What do you think his legacy is at TTS?
1: Uh, so, I think Anil really brought uh, initially some stability uh, to the role. You know, I, I really enjoyed working with him, uh, and I'm obviously sad to see him go, but, you know, wish him wish him the best. So, he brought initially some stability. He did a great job of listening when he first came in, sort of understood where the organization was. And then you know, he laid out a, a nice, clear vision, particularly in the Centers of Excellence area. And he and Bob DeLuca worked hand in hand there. I think the growth in the number of agencies that have adopted uh, the COE model and are working with the Technology Transformation Services team you know, really is really is sort of proof in the pudding that Anil's approach uh, worked and worked well. Alan Thomas, great to see you. Thanks
0: for coming on the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Francis. Take care. Up next, keeping
0: the trains running on time at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, continuing IT projects during coronavirus. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
2: This month's Digital VA
0: is brought to you by Pure Storage. The shift to telework at the Department of Veterans Affairs included the purchase of over 120,000 laptops to allow employees to work from home. The point of the shift was to keep everything else the agency does moving forward. Dominic Cusat is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary and Deputy Chief Information Officer at the VA. Dom, thanks for coming back on the program. Did you have time in this remote work shift to form a strategic plan, or did you just have to do what you needed to do to keep the trains running on time, Dom?
2: Yeah, thanks, Francis. Great to be here. Um, It it was a little bit of both, I'd say. Um, We did have to sort of stand down on some of our lower priority uh, activities that were going on. Um, It it was an all-hands-on-deck exercise um, where we sort of had to scrum and figure out, okay, what is the requirement here? What do we need to do? Um, But we found that a a lot of the things that we did during our digital transformation that's been going on for a a few years here at VA uh, set us up nicely to have some scalability and uh, some capacity growth, building on the infrastructure that we had improved over the past couple of years. So we leveraged some things we already had in place to deal with things like uh, natural disasters or um, uh, other incidents where we had to uh, support telehealth and telework, um, and then you know uh, come up, came up with a very strategic and tactical plan uh, to get very precisely the things uh, we needed in place in place as quickly as possible, and then once that those things were in place, we could move back to some of those uh, lower priority proactive. You know, normal operations
0: has the virus response and the way that you've had to shift to this remote work environment, Dom, changed that priority list at all, or does it look pretty similar to the way that it looks, say, middle of February? I think it's back
2: to looking pretty similar because, you know, when it comes right down to it, we at the VA have to provide health care to our nation's veterans. We have about nine million veterans that we service through our medical centers every day. And in our benefits uh, administration, we have we we process millions of claims every year and cut millions of checks that our veterans depend on uh, to to meet their expenses. So, you know, none of that changed as a result of COVID and you know we still had a very clear priority list but we're now meeting the requirements of that priority list in, in just some different and more creative ways using uh, telehealth and and remote work
0: we always talk about unintended consequences in situations like this Dom I wonder if there have been any unintended benefits that you have seen whether it's um, VA wide or just within the Office of Information Technology there Um, are you seeing things that you didn't expect to see that are a benefit to the way that you execute mission?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And and yes, actually, it's true. We did see, actually, uh, when we did our first cut um, remote work capability, we did see an increase in um, processing volume of some of our benefits claims. So, uh, the remote work capability worked and it actually um, enabled uh, our um, benefits staff to focus on the mission and actually increase their their processing numbers. Also seeing a huge rise in telehealth visits. So telehealth has been a very important activity for the VA as a force multiple. Multiplier. Uh, it's very hard for some of our veterans to make it to uh, customary brick and mortar facilities. So we've been trying to get the telehealth capability out there and and get uh, folks to embrace it, both from the clinical side and from the patient side. So as a result of our uh, spike in telehealth capability that that we got deployed, we saw a w- over a one thousand percent increase. It, it, Uh, in telehealth visits. We went from about 2,000 daily visits uh, back in January to uh, about 27,000 daily visits in May. So we're seeing exponential growth in these capabilities, and that's a pleasant change to see that folks are embracing it, they're using it, they're seeing the value of it, and that's going to make them want to use it in the future, even beyond uh, when the COVID crisis uh, uh, sort of winds down. We think this is a capability that's going to stick.
0: Any bumps in the road in that transition from 2,000 to 27,000 consultations uh, IT-wise? Or were there things that you undertook, as you mentioned before, in that digitization effort that allowed you to do that scale? Well, a
2: lot of the platforms that we built during the digital transformation uh, enabled us to scale up very quickly. We had very successfully moved into the cloud. We leveraged our uh, our cloud environments uh, to uh, enable us to scale quickly. Um, and then, you know, we have to hand it to uh, the vendor community. Uh, they were there for us. They stepped up very quickly uh, during our stand downs and our um uh, all hands on deck exercises. We had almost constant calls with our vendors to share with them what our new requirements were and see what they could do to get us the equipment and the capabilities and the software and the licenses we needed to support this huge spike. And uh, they worked with us and our um, strategic sourcing folks to get our capabilities scaled up quickly. And And we were very fortunate that they helped prioritize the veterans needs uh, and we're very happy to help veterans. So uh, that, that helped.
0: We have less than a minute left, Dom. We mentioned, talked about strategy at the beginning of this conversation. Now that you're seeing things like this shift to telework that you, or telehealth that you expect to see stick, does that mean the strategy overall of the IT operation at VA will change, or will you keep moving in the same direction, just maybe with different emphases than you did before? I, I think it's
2: the latter. Uh, our priorities are still similar, but we're seeing the benefits of this—not te- just telehealth, but telecounseling, telehearings. So uh, I think you're just going to see us uh, more doubling down on the capacities uh, to grow into these areas and support uh, remote work capabilities, and you know, bring our services to the veterans rather than have them have to rely on coming to us. Uh, so I think we're you know we're we're looking to mobile capabilities Uh, we're looking to you know use new innovative technologies to really increase uh the 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 experience that the veterans are having working with us remotely
0: dom kusat thanks very much and congratulations on the success you've had thank you so much up next tracking sea ice to understand how our planet is changing straight ahead on government matters groundbreaking research from a career of public service Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Polar sea ice could be the key to understanding climate change. Research over the past four decades has changed in that area dramatically. Claire Parkinson is a climate change senior scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. She's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the Paul A. Volcker Career Achievement Award category. Claire, congratulations on your selection. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Your biography from the Partnership for Public Service says, uh, quotes you saying, when I started at NASA, somebody asked me what I was working on. I said I'm working on sea ice. And the response was, what is that an acronym for? I got the joke as somebody who follows government stuff, but what does that say in your mind about where the research in sea ice was when you started and where it's come to today, Claire?
3: There has been a gigantic change. Uh, In the 1970s, when I started, a lot of people had simply never even heard of sea ice. And so the question about it, being an acronym was understandable at that time but I think that the satellite data that I and others have been working on for the past four plus decades uh have really has have really revealed changes in the sea ice cover especially in the Arctic that really quantify and give a solid indication of climate change and it had certainly tremendously increased the interest in cis both in the scientific community and in the public at large
0: one of the major uh things that you've been involved with throughout your career is the aqua satellite program what did we learn what did you learn at nasa and what did we learn as a society about what's going on on earth as a result of the aqua uh, satellite program
3: okay the aqua satellite program is separate from my sea ice research so the sea ice research i've been doing ever since i got it at nasa in 1978 the aqua program is a, a satellite mission that I became project scientist of in 1993. It launched in 2002. It always takes a while to get a large satellite uh, built and launched. And since then, since uh, 2002, it's been collecting data on all sorts of aspects of the uh, global includes atmosphere oceans land uh ice lots of things and it's it's served a lot of scientists in terms of providing data for their science there have been over 19,000 publications using aqua data so it's served science a lot but it's also served the public a lot the data are used weather forecasting. They're used to monitor forest fires and oil slicks and um, air quality and water quality and volcanic ash plumes. So lots of different applications of value to the public.
0: Claire, we have about 30 seconds left. One of the things in your bio from the partnership says that you are very good at translating the kind of very complex issues that you work on into narratives that are easy for people to understand who are not experts in these areas. How do you do that?
3: I always think about what the person I'm speaking to might know and not know. And I think that's key not to try to get across what you know, but to try to educate the other person so in sea ice i i explain the importance of the fact that it's white therefore it's reflecting most of the sun's radiation therefore when it disappears the sun's radiation comes in gets into the ocean instead of getting reflected away and therefore causes further warming so that's just one of the examples of why the sea ice decreases in the Arctic are really important to the climate.
0: Claire, thank you very much for your terrific contribution. Congratulations on your selection as a Sammy's finalist. Appreciate your time today.
3: Francis, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter
2: to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV.
0: In tonight's event spotlight, the NatSec 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond virtual conference is coming. From Government Matters Conference TV, you'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government in the specialty areas that drive the business of government. Personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. And you'll learn how key players in the national security community are planning for a post-COVID world. You can join the free webinar at FedInsider.com or you can tune in to WJLA 24-7 News the week of July 13th from 1 to 2 p.m that's the latest from washington join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on wjla 24 7 news and next sunday morning at ten thirty on abc 7 stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government thanks for watching i'm francis rose
2: thanks for listening our daily program is produced by sharice hanner and ashley gallagher christy marriott leads our technical crew our web editor is beatrix Haddon.